This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. This week, I chat with Rob Sutter about why you already have a multi-cloud strategy. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 99. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Rob Sutter. Hey, Rob, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. So you are now the or a principal developer advocate at Fauna. Um, so I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what Fauna is all about. Right. So as you said, I'm a DA at Fauna. Uh, I've been a serverless user in production since 2017. Uh, started the serverless user group in Dubai. So that's how I got into uh, serverless in general. Previously, I was a DA on the serverless team at AWS, and I've been a, a SaaS startup co-founder, a government employee, an IT auditor. And uh, like a lot of serverless people, I find I have a lot of ops in my background, mm. which is why I don't want to do it anymore. Um, <laughs> it's There's a lot of us that end up here that way, I think. Um, but Fauna is, uh, Fauna is the data API for modern applications. So it's a database that you access as an API just as you would access Stripe for payments, um, Twilio for messaging. You just put your data into Fauna and access it that way. It's flexible, serverless, uh, it's transactional. So it's a distributed database with ACID transactions. And um, again, it's, it's as simple as accessing any other API that you're already accessing as a developer so that you can simplify your code and ship faster. Awesome. All right. Well, so I want to talk more about Fauna, but I want to talk about it actually in a broader, uh, I think in the sort of broader ecosystem of what's happening in the cloud right now. And um, we hear this term multi-cloud all the time. And by the way, I'm super excited to have you on. I wanted to have you on for like the longest time and then just schedules and it's like, you know, yeah. you know how it is. But anyways, yeah. thanks. But no, but seriously, I'm super excited because I, you know, your tweets and everything that you've written and the things that you were doing at AWS and things like that, I think just all kind of, you know, uh, reinforce the um, this idea that we are living in this multi-cloud world, right? And that um, when people think of multi-cloud, and this is something I I, I try to be very clear on. Um, Multi-cloud is not cloud agnostic, right? It, it's a right. very different thing, right? We're not talking about running the same workload in parallel on multiple service providers or whatever. We're talking right. about this idea of using the best services that are available to you um, across the spectrum of providers, whether those are uh, cloud service providers, whether those are uh, SaaS companies, or uh, even to some degree, you know, some open source projects that are out there that um, I think to some, you know, that that kind of make up this this strategy. So, um, so let's start there, uh, you know, right from the beginning. Just give me your thoughts on this idea of 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 what multi cloud is. Right. Well, it's it's sort of a dirty word today, and and people like to rail against it, and I think rightly so because it's that multi cloud one the idea of, as you said, cloud agnostic, that write once, run everywhere. And all that is is a race to the bottom, right? It's uh, it's the lowest common denominator. It's what do I have available on every cloud service provider? And then let me write for that as a risk management strategy. And that's a, that's a cost center when you want to put it right. in business terms, right? You're not generating any value there. You're managing risk by investing against that. Um, in contrast, what you and I are talking about today is this idea of, uh, let me use best in class everywhere. And that's a value generation strategy. This cloud service provider offers something that this team understands and wants to build with and creates value for the customer more quickly. So they're going to write on that cloud service provider. This team over here has different needs, different customers, let them write over there. And quite frankly, a lot of this is already happening today at medium businesses and enterprises, right. it's just not called multi-cloud, right? So it's this right. bottom-up approach that individual teams are consuming according to their needs to create the greatest value for customers. And that's what I like to see, and that's what I like to promote. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love that idea of bottom up because I think that is absolutely true. And, and I don't think you've seen this as aggressively um, as you have in the last probably five years as, as more SaaS companies have become or SaaS has become you know, a household name. I mean, probably mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I think Salesforce was around and some of these other things were around, right? Yeah. But they just weren't, they weren't the household names that they are now. Now you watch any, you know, any sport you know, any uh, professional sport and you see, um, you know, you see uh, advertisements for all these SaaS companies now uh, because that seems to be the modern economy. But um, the idea of the bottom up approach, um, that is something where, you know, you basically give a developer or maybe you don't give them, but the developer takes the liberties, I would say, to maybe try and experiment with something new um, without having to, you know, do years of research, um, go through procurement, get approval to use some platform. Um, Even companies trying to move to AWS or onto Azure or something like that, um, they have to go through such, you know, hoops, you know, basically jump through hoops in order yeah. to get them there. So this idea of, of, of um, you know, the, the bottom-up approach, the developers are the ones who are experimenting, um, very low-risk experiments, by the way, mm-hmm. um, with some of these other services, um, that approach, that seems like the right marketing approach for companies that are, that are building these services, right? Yeah, it, it seems like a a powerful approach for them. Maybe not necessarily the only one, but it's it is right. a good one. This is I mean there's there's an historical lesson here as well, right? And I want to come back to your point about the developers after it, but I, I think of this as shadow cloud, mm-hmm. right? And you saw this with the early days of SaaS where people would go out and sign up for accounts for their business and use them and they weren't necessarily regulated. Um, but we saw even before that with shadow IT, right? Where people right. were bringing their own software in. So for enterprises that are afraid of this, that are heavily risk focused or control focused top down, I would say don't be so afraid because there's an entire set of lessons you can learn about this as right. you bring it, as you come forward to it. And then with the developers, I think it's even more powerful than the way you you put it because a lot of times it's not an experiment. I mean, you've seen the same things on Twitter. I've seen the great tech turnover of 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and and that's normal for tech. There's such a turnover that a lot of times people are coming in already having the skills that they know will enhance delivery and add customer value more quickly. So it's not even an experiment. It's it. They already have the evidence, and they're able to get their team skilled up and building quickly. And if you know, you hire someone who's coming from an AWS shop, you hire someone who's coming from an Azure shop onto two different teams. They're likely going to evolve that um, that excellence or that capability independently. And I don't necessarily think there's a reason to stop that as long as you have the right controls around it. Right. And I mean, and you mentioned controls. And, and I think that if I'm a, uh, you know, I'm the CTO of some company or whatever, or I'm the CIO, because, you know, we're, we're dealing in a super enterprisey world, um, you know, that that you have developers that are starting to use tools, um, you know, maybe not Stripe, but maybe, you know, like a Twilio, or maybe they're using, um, I don't know, Chaos Search or something, mm-hmm. any something where data that is from within their corporate walls are are, are going out somewhere or being stored somewhere else. Um, like the security risk around that, I mean, there, there's something there though, right? Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, I think it's incumbent on the organizations to understand what's going on and adapt I think it's also incumbent on the cloud service providers to understand those organizational concerns and evolve their product to address them, right? right. And this is one thing, my, my classic example of this is uh, data exfiltration in the Lambda function. Mm-hmm. Some companies get, so, I wanna be able to inspect every packet that leaves. And they have that hard requirement for reasons, right? You can't right. argue with them that they're right or wrong um, they've made that decision as a company, but then they have to understand the impact of that is, okay, well, every single Lambda function that you ever create is going to run inside a VPC or is going to run connected to a VPC. And now you have the added complexity of managing a VPC, managing your firewall rules, your knackles, your security groups, all of this stuff that maybe you still have to do it. Maybe it really is a requirement. But if you examine your requirements from a business perspective and say, okay, there's another way we can address this with uh, tightly scoped IAM permissions that only allow me to read certain records or from certain tables or access certain keys or whatever, then we assume all that traffic goes out and that's okay. Then you get to throw all that complexity away and get back to delivering value more quickly. So they they have to meet together, right? They have to meet. And this led to a lot of the work that AWS did with um, VPC networking for Lambda functions and removing the cold starts. 
uh, yeah. because a lot those enterprises weren't ready to let go of that requirement. And AWS can't tell them you're wrong. It's it's right. their business. It's their requirement. So AWS built that for them to uh, to reduce the cold start so that Lambda became a viable platform for them to to build against. Right. And so if you're a developer and you're you're looking at some solution, because, by the way, I mean, I like you said, choosing the best of breed, like there are just uh, a lot of good services out there. There are thousands and thousands of SaaS companies. And, and I think mm -hmm. I don't know if we made this point, but I, I certainly consider SaaS companies themselves to be part of the cloud. I think you would probably agree with that. Right. I mean, they yeah. might as well be cloud providers themselves. Most of them run on top of the cloud providers anyways. But um, but but they don't have to. And that's interesting to me in and of itself. True. That yes. you could be consuming services from somebody else's data center, and that's still multi-cloud. Right, right. Um, so anyway, so my, my, my thought here is, or, or I guess the, the question I have is, if you're a developer and you're, uh, you're trying to choose something best in breed, right, whatever that is, let's say I'm, I'm trying to send text messages uh, and I just think Twilio is, you know, it's got all the features I need, um, I want to go with Twilio. If you're a developer, what are the things that you need to look for in some of these companies that maybe don't have, um, I mean, I would say Twilio does, but like does don't necessarily have the trust or the years of, of experience um, or I guess, uh, you know, years under their belts of, uh, uh, of, of providing these services and keeping data secure and things like that. What's the advice that you give to developers looking to choose something like that to, you know, sort of be aware of? I... <laughs> To developers in particular, uh, I well, think I is mean, a different yeah, answer. I, I'm, I'm, I, well, well, answer it both ways then. <laughs> yeah, because there's there's the builder and the the buyer, right? Right. right. Whoever the buyer right. is, and a lot of times that could just be the the software development man, manager who's right. the buyer, and they still would approach it different ways. I think the developer is first going to be concerned with does it solve my problem, mm. right? That that's overall does it allow me to ship faster. Um, the next thing has to be stability. You have to expect that this company will be around, there, which means there is a certain level of evidence that you need of, okay, this company has been around and has right. serviced, and that's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. Right. Um, I think the developer is going to be a lot less concerned with that and more concerned with the immediacy of the, the problem that they're facing. The the buyer, whether that's a manager or you know CIO or anywhere in between, uh, is going to need to be concerned with other things according to their size, right? Um, you even get the weird multi-cloud corner cases of, well, we're a major supplier of Walmart, and this tool only runs on a certain cloud service provider that they don't right. want us to use, so we're not going to use it. And and again, that's a business decision. Like, would I build my software that way? No, but I'm not subject to that constraint. So that right. means nothing in that equation. So, so you you mentioned a little bit earlier this idea of like you know bringing people in from um, uh, from different organizations. Like you know if somebody comes in and they can sort of pick up where somebody else left off. And one of the things that I I've noticed quite a bit in some of the companies that I've worked with uh, is that they like to build custom tools. Uh, they build <laughs> custom tools to solve a job, right? And then that's great. But as soon as you know Fred or Sarah leave, right? Then all of a sudden um, you know it's like well who takes over this project and and that's one of the things where um, you know I mentioned I said experiments um, and I said you know some low risk I think something that's probably more low risk than building your own thing is choosing an API or a service that solves your problem because right. then there's likely someone else who knows that API uh, or that service that can come in and can replace it and then can sort of have that seamless transition. And as you said, with all the turnover that's been happening uh, lately, it's probably a good thing if you have some if you have some backup. Um, and even if you don't necessarily have that person, um, if you have a custom system built in-house, um, there's no yeah. one that can support that. But if you have a custom system, if you have a, a system you've you've used, you're interfacing with Twilio or Stripe or whatever it is, um, you can find a lot of developers who could come in even as consultants and and so, and you know continue to maintain and solve your problems for you. Yeah, and it's not just those external providers; it's the internal tooling as well, right? Right. We're, right. And we're guilty of this in in my company. Um, we wrote a lot of stuff. Everybody is right. Like you like right. to do it. It's a it's a problem that you recognize. It feels good to solve. It's a quick win, and it's almost always the wrong answer. But when you get into things like it, a lot of cases, it doesn't matter what specific tool you use. Um, you know, ten years ago, if you had chosen Puppet or Chef or Ansible, it wouldn't be as important which one as right. the fact that you chose one of those, so that you could then go out and find someone who knew it. Today, of course, you got 
uh, Pulumi and Terraform and right. all these other things that, that you could choose from. And it's just better than writing a bunch of bash scripts, uh, to tie all this stuff together. I believe Bash should more or less be banned in the cloud, but that's another, <laughs> that's, that's my hot take for another time. Come at me on Twitter if you don't like that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think uh, this bringing up this idea of tooling um, is important because the other thing that you potentially run into is with the variety of tooling that's out there. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned the, 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 original um, sort of IAC, I guess they would, uh, right? Would we call those like Ansible and those sort of things, right? right? The uh, um, All of those things as chefs and the puppets, um, you know, those were great because you could have repeatable deployments and, and things like that. I mean, you still, you know, there's still work to be done there, but like that was great because you made the choice to not build something yourself, right? Something right. that was, you know, that somebody else could jump in on. Um, but now with Terraform and with, um, you, you mentioned Pulumi, we've got CloudFormation. Um, I mean, even, you know, Microsoft has their own, I think it's called ARM or something like mm -hmm. that, that is, a, you know, sort of a uh, infrastructure as code. We get the serverless framework. We've got SAM. We've got, you know, uh, Begin. Yeah. You've got, or uh, Architect, right? You've got all these, um, all of these choices. And, uh, and I, I think what happens, too, is that if teams don't necessarily... Um, if they don't rally around a tool, then you end up with a bunch of people using a bunch of different tools. Um, and yeah. maybe not all these tools are going to be compatible, but I, I've seen really interesting mixes of people using Terraform and CloudFormation and SAM and serverless framework, like just, you know, like combining it all together. And I think that just becomes, I, I, I think that becomes a huge mess. It... <sighs> It does, and I get back to my favorite quote about complexity, right? Like simplicity before complexity is worthless. Simpl simplicity beyond complexity is priceless. I I find it hard to get to one tool. That's right. like artificial, premature optimization, fake simplicity. Um, yeah. If you force yourself into one tool all the time, then you're going to find it doing what it wasn't built to do. And a, a good example of this, you talked about like Terraform and the serverless framework. In my opinion, they work great together, um, but your Terraform comes through your persistent infrastructure yeah. and your serverless framework comes in and consumes the outputs of those Terraform stacks, but then builds the the constantly churning infrastructure pieces of it, right? And there's like a, there's a blast radius issue there as well, where you can't take down your database or S3 bucket or all of this from a bad deploy when all of that is done in Terraform either by your team or by another team or by another process, right? Um, so there's there's a certain irreducible complexity that we get to, um, but you don't want to have duplication of effort with multiple tools, right? You don't want to use right. cloud formation to manage your uh, persistent data over here and Terraform to manage your persistent data over here, because then you're not, that's like that agnostic model where you're not benefiting from the the excellent features in each you're only using whatever right. is common between them. Right. Right. And I, I totally agree with you. I, I do like the, the, you know, the, the idea of consuming, I mean, I, I, I have been using AWS for a very, very long time, like, like yeah, 2007, <laughs> 2008, um, oh, like yeah. right, like right when EC2 instances were sort of a thing, um, I guess 2008. But, uh, but the, the biggest thing for me looking at, um, uh, you know, like using Terraform or something like that. Like I always felt like kind of keeping it in, um, keeping it in uh, the family, that's the wrong way to say it, but like using <laughs> CloudFormation uh, made a lot of sense, right? Because I knew that CloudFormation, or I thought I knew, that CloudFormation would always support the services that needed to be built. And that was one of my big complaints about it. It was sort of like you had this delay between they would release some service and you had to either do it through the CLI or through the, the console, but then CloudFormation support came, you know, months later. And when mm -hmm. the the problem that you had with some of that was then again, other tools that were generating CloudFormation, like a serverless framework, um, that they would have to wait in, to get CloudFormation support before they could support it, and that would be another delay, or they'd have to build something custom, um, which is not always the cleanest way to do it. So. Right. Um, so anyways, I, I've always I've always felt like, um, you know, sort of the, the CloudFormation route was great if you could get to that CloudFormation. But things that have happened with CDK, we didn't even mention CDK, um, but CDK yeah. and Pulumi and Terraform and all these other things, like they've all provided these different ways to do things. Um, 
But the thing that I always thought was sort of funny was, and this is, and, and I, maybe you have some insight into this if you can, if you can share it. But with Sam, for example, Sam wasn't extensible, right? Like you would just run into issues where you're like, oh, I can't do that with Sam. Whereas the serverless framework had this, you know, this really great uh, third-party plugin system that allowed you to do some of these other things. Now, granted, not all third-party plugins were super stable and were the best way to do something, right? Because you know they'd either interact with APIs directly or whatever. Um, but at least it gave you, uh, it, it it unblocked you. Whereas I felt right. like with Sam and even CloudFormation, <laughs> when it didn't support something, would block you. Yeah. Yeah. And those are just two different implementation philosophies from two different companies at two different stages of their existence, right? Mm -hmm. Like AWS, and let's separate the, the reality from the theory here. The theory is that a large company can exert control over release cycles and limit what it delivers, but deliver it with a, a bar of excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, a small company can open things up and it depends on its community members for contributions to solve problems. And it's very much like, this is the cathedral in the bazaar of cloud tooling, right? Uh, AWS has that cloud formation architecture that they're working around with its own you know, goals and approach, the one way to do it. The serverless framework is, look, you need to, you wanna set up a stall here and insert IAM policies per function, set up a stall, it'll be great. Mm -hmm. Maybe people come and maybe they don't. And the system inherently sorts or bubbles up the value. Right. So you see things like the step functions plugin for serverless framework it was one of the early ones that became very popular very quickly. Right. Um, whereas step function support in Sam uh, trailed, but eventually came in. I, th I think that team, by the way, deserves a lot of credit for mm -hmm. uh, really being focused on developers. But that's not that's not the point of the, the difference between the two. Um, a small, young company like serverless framework that is you know moving very quickly can't have that cathedral approach to it right. and and both are valid right they're they're both just different strategies and and good for the marketplace quite frankly i have my preferred approach uh which is is not about aws or sam versus serverless framework it's it's the extensibility of plug-in frameworks to me are a key component of tooling that adapts as quickly as the clouds change. And you see this like Terraform was the first place that I really learned about plugins and their plugin framework is fantastic. The way they do providers serverless framework as well is another good example, but you can't know how developers are going to build with your uh, services. You just can't. You do customer development. You talk to them ahead of time. You get all this research. You talk to a thousand customers and then you release it to 14 million customers, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're just, you're never going to guess. So let them. Let them build it. And if people, you know, they put the work in, people find there's value in it. Sometimes you can bring it in. Sometimes you leave it up to the community to maintain. Um, but you just, uh, you have to be willing to accept that customers are going to use your product in different ways than you envision. And, and that's a good thing because it means customers are using your product. Right. Yeah, so I mean, from your perspective, though, because let's talk about Sam for a minute, because I I was excited when Sam came out. I was thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, uh, a, a simple fly, a simplified, um, uh, you know, tooling that is focused on serverless, right? Like gives me all the things that I, I think I'm going to need. And then I did, you know, from a developer experience standpoint, and you know, let's let you know, let's call out the elephant in the room. AWS and developer experience are not always the same. Um, they don't always give you that 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 developer experience that you would. Want to. I, they give you tons of tools, right? But funnily enough, you, you can spell developer experience without AWS. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's <laughs> that's sort of my. I was disappointed when I started using Sam, um, and I immediately reverted back to the serverless framework. Um, not because I thought that it wasn't good or that it wasn't well thought out, and like you said, it was. There was a level of excellence there, which certainly you cannot diminish. It just didn't do the things I needed it to do. And I'm just yeah. curious if, if that was if that was the consistent feedback that that you got as being someone on um you know on the on the dev advocate team there. Um was that was that something that you sort of you know felt as well? I need to give two answers to this to be fair, uh okay. to be honest. Um that was something that I felt as well. I, I never got as comfortable with Sam as I am with the serverless framework. But there's another side to this coin, and that's that enterprise uptake of Sam CLI has been really strong. 
Right. Enterprise, it does what they need it to do, and it addresses their concerns, and they like getting tooling from AWS. And it just goes back to there being a, a place for both, right? Right. Um, if And that's, you know, enterprises are much more likely to build cathedrals. They want that top-down, okay, everybody, this is how you define something. In fact, we've created a module for you. Consume it here. Thou shalt not write new, you know, S3 to web server. Right. B- configuration in your in your SAM templates, thou shalt consume this. Um, that's that's not wrong. And you know, the usage numbers don't lie with SAM. Like it's it's got a lot of fans and it's got a lot of of uptake. Right. Um, but that's an entirely different answer from how I feel about it. And I think it uh, it also goes back to I I'm not running an enterprise. I've never right. run an enterprise. You know, the right. the biggest I've got in terms of responsibility is at best a small company, right? Um, and, and so I think it's natural for me to feel that way when I try to use a tool that has such popularity amongst enterprise. Now, of course you have, you have the, the switch, right? You have enterprises using serverless framework and you have small, uh, builders using SAM, but, um, in general, I think the success there was with the enterprise and it's a validation of their strategy. Right. Hey everyone, I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. We all know the pace of technology innovation is incredibly fast, and IT professionals and developers like me have to constantly be learning new skills and new services just to keep up with the latest trends. Now, I love to get a quick overview of something in a blog post or maybe a YouTube tutorial, but if I really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. And with CBT Nuggets, I have access to over 400 courses and 4,000 hours of training, everything from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. Plus, virtual labs let you practice new skills to help you retain what you learn. With a completely in-house training team, they add 40 hours of content every week, plus they have accountability coaching that lets you talk to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan, set goals, and check in to keep you accountable. It's such a valuable service because finishing a course isn't just personally rewarding, it also ensures you've learned those extra little nuances that'll set you up for success. CBT Nuggets has a free learner offer for Serverless Chats listeners. Sign up with a Google account and watch parts of their most popular courses completely free. And everyone who signs up will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription. Start training right away by visiting cbtnuggets.com slash serverless. So let's talk about enterprises for a second because this is where... um, where we look at tools like the CDK and I mean SAM, serverless framework, things like that. You look at all those different tools, um, and you know, like you said, there's a- adoption across some of those. But at the end of the day, most of those tools are combi- uh, compiling down to cloud formation, or they're compiling down to you know, Am- what's it called, uh, Azure Resource Manager mm-hmm. language, or whatever the yeah. heck it is, right? ARM templates. Um, so, is is there? I, What's the value now in cloud formation and those sort of things that like the the final product that you get to? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly it's so much easier to build those using, um, uh, you know, using these these uh, frameworks. But um, but, you know, do we need do we need cloud formation and those things anymore? Do we need to know those Does an individual developer need to be able to understand those or can they just basically take a step back and say, look, a CDK does it for me or uh, Pulumi does it for me. So why why do I need to know, you know, what's it, what's baked into those? Those templates. Yeah. So let's set Terraform aside and talk about it after because it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the choice of JSON and YAML as implementation languages for most of these tooling, most of this tooling is is very. Uh, it was a very effective choice because you don't necessarily have to know cloud formation to look at a template and divine what it's doing. Right. right. You don't have to understand transforms. You don't have to understand parameter replacement and all of this stuff to look at the final transform template in cloud formation in the console and get a very quick reasoning about what's happening. Um, that's good. Do I think there's value in learning to create multi thousand line cloud formation templates by hand? I don't. Um, it, it's sort of the assembly language of the cloud. Right. It's right. there when you need it. And just like with uh, with procedural languages, you might want to look underneath at 
the the instructions, how it unrolled certain loops, how it decided not to unroll others so that you can make changes at the next level. But I think that's that's rare and that's optimization um, in terms of getting things done and getting things shipped and delivered to start. Um, I, I wouldn't start with playing cloud formation for any right. of these, especially of anything for any like meaningful production size. That that's not a criticism of cloud formation. It's just like you said, it's all this other tooling is there to help us generate what we want consistently. Uh, the other benefit of it is once you have that underlying lingua franca of the cloud, mm -hmm. you can build visualization and debugging and monitoring and like I mean all of these other evaluatory forensic evaluatory is that a word it's a word now it's, you heard it here first on this podcast um like forensic cloud forensic type tooling that lets right. you see what's going on because it is a universal language among all of the tools yeah and i and i, I want to get back to terraform because i know you mentioned that but i also want to be clear like i don't suggest you write cloud formation i mean i think i think it is it is horribly verbose um but but probably needs to be right you know it, yeah. it probably needs to have that that uh level of fidelity there or you know that just has all that that descriptive information um yeah i would not suggest i'm with you don't suggest that some yeah. people you know choose that as their as their way to go um i'm just wondering if it's it's one of those things where like we don't need to be able to look at ones and zeros anymore and understand what they do right we've got higher level right. constructs that do that for us um i wouldn't quite put um i i get the assembly language uh, comparison i think that's a good uh, i think that's a good comparison but it's just that you know if you are an enterprise, right, is that, you know, do you trust, do you trust um, uh, something like uh, CDK to do everything you needed to do and make sure that it's covering all its bases? Because again, you're writing layers of abstraction on top of a layer of abstraction um, that then abstracts it even more. So um, yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, like you, you had mentioned, you know, like forensic tools, like I, I think there's value there uh, in being able to understand, um, you know, exactly what gets put into, you know, into the cloud. Yeah. And, and I'd agree with that. And, you know, we're, it takes 15 seconds to run into the limit of my knowledge on CDK, by the way, but <laughs> that knowledge includes the fact that CDK synth is there, which yeah. generates the cloud formation template for you. That, and that's actually the thing, which is uploaded to the cloud right. formation service and executed. Um, you know, you'd have to bring in somebody like a Richard Boyd or someone to talk about the guardrails that are there around it. I know they exist. I don't know what mm -hmm. they are. Um, it, it's wildly popular and adoption is through the roof. So again, um, whether I philosophically think it's a good idea or not is irrelevant. Developers right. want it and want to build with it, right? It's a yeah. bizarre type tool where they give you some basic constructs and you can, you can write your own constructs around it and get whatever you need. But ultimately that comes back to cloud formation, which is then subject to all the controls that your organization puts around cloud formation. So it is, it is, there's value there. Can't be denied. Right. No, and I and I the thing that I like about the CDK um, is the idea of being able to create those constructs because I I think especially from a uh, from a just a what's the right word a compliance standpoint or something like that that mm -hmm. you can write in these constructs that you say you need to use these constructs when you deploy a microservice or you deploy this or whatever it is and then you have you you know those guardrails as you mentioned or whatever but those all of those sort of like check boxes are ticked because um, you can you can put that all into one uh, into one construct. So I totally think that's great. All right, so let's talk about Terraform. <laughs> yeah, so there's first, it's a completely different model, right? And this right. is an interesting discussion to have because it's API calls. It's mm -hmm. all you you write your provider, whatever your infrastructure is, and anything that can be an API call can now be a Terraform declarative resource. So it's that mapping between declarative and imperative uh, that that I find fascinating while also building the, the dependency graph for you. So it handles all of those aspects of it, uh, which is a really powerful tool. Um, the thing that they did so well, Terraform is equally verbose as cloud formation. Mm -hmm. uh, if you, you know, you've got to configure all the same options, you get the same defaults, et cetera. Uh, it can be terribly verbose, but it's modular. You know, every Terraform file that you have in one directory is concatenated. And that is a huge distinction between how CloudFormation wants everything in one template or, yeah. well, you can refer to something in an S3 bucket, but that's not actually useful to me as a developer. Right. Like, I can't mount an S3 bucket as a drive on my workstation and compose all of these independent files at once and do them that way. And sidebar here, maybe I can, maybe it supports that and I haven't been able to discover it, right? Mm -hmm. 
Whereas Terraform, by default, out of the box, put everything in its own file according to function. It's very easy to look in your databases.tf and understand what's in there. Look in your yep. vpc.tf and understand what's in there. Um, and not have to go through thousands of lines of code at once. Yes, we have find and replace. Yes, we have search. And you, anybody who's ever built any of this stuff knows that's not the same thing. It's right. not the same thing as being able to open 100 lines in your text editor and look at everything all at once and gain an understanding of it and then dive into the next level of detail right. 100 lines at a time and understand that. Right. But now just a question here without because the API thing, I, I love that idea. And actually serverless components used an API thing to, to do it and bypass CloudFormation. And actually, I believe Architect originally was using APIs and then hmm. switched to CloudFormation. But um, the, the question I have about that is that if you don't have a CloudFormation template, if you don't have that assembly language of the web, and that's not sitting in your CloudFormation you know, tool uh, built into uh, to the dashboard, um, you don't get the drift protection, right, or the detection, and you don't get, you know, you don't have that resource map necessarily up there, right? Um, well, first, I don't think CloudFormation is the assembly language of the web. I think it's the assembly language of AWS, and that right. leads yes. into my yep. point here, yep. which is, okay, AWS gives you the CloudFormation dashboard, but what if you're now consuming things from Datadog or from right. Fauna or from other places that that don't map this the same way. Right. Um, and Terraform actually does manage that. You can do a plan against your existing file and it will go out and check the actual existing state of all of your resources mm. and compare them to what you've asked for declaratively and show you what the change set will be. And if it's yeah, zero, there's right, no drift. Right. And if there is something, then there's either drift or you've added new functionality. Um, now with uh, Terraform Cloud, which I've only used at a basic level. I'm not yeah. sure how automatic that is or whether it provides that for you. If you're from HashiCorp and listening to this, I would love to learn more. Get in touch with me. Please tell me. Um, but the tooling is there to do that, but it's there to do it across anything that can be right. treated as an API that has uh, really just create and retrieve. You don't even necessarily need the update and delete functionality there. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I and I certainly I am I am a fan of Terraform um, and uh, all of these services that make it easier for you to to build um, to build cloud uh, clouds more easily. Um, but let's talk about APIs, because you, you mentioned, you know, anything with an API. Well, everything has APIs now. Right. <laughs> I mean, essentially, we are living in, um, you know, we, I mentioned SaaS, but now we're sort of, you know, this whole idea of the API economy. So, you yeah. know, just overall, what, what are your thoughts on on this idea of, you know, basically anything? you want to do uh, is available now via an API? It's not anything you want to do. It's everything you want to do sort, short of fulfilling your customer's needs, mm. short of solving your customer's specific problem is available as an API. And that means that you get to choose best in class for everything, right? Your, your customer's need isn't I want to spend $25 on my credit card. Your customer's need is I, I need a book. Right. And so it's not, I want to store information about books in a database. It's I need a book. And so everything at every step of the way there can now be consumed from an API. Again, it's like serverless in general, right? It, it allows you to focus purely or as close to purely as we can right now on generating customer value and addressing right. customer problems so that you can ship faster and so that you have it as a competitive advantage. Um, I can write a payment processing program. I know I can because I've done it back in 2004 and it was horrible and it was awful and it wasn't a very good one and it worked. It took your money, but this was like pre-PCI DSS and if mm -hmm. I had to comply with all of those things, why would I do that? That's I'm not a credit card payment processor. Stripe right. is. And they have specialists in all of the areas related to the problem of, I need to take and process payments. That's mm -hmm. the customer problem that they're solving. Uh, so it's, you know, the specialization of labor that comes along with the API economy is, is fantastic. And ops never went away. All the ops people work at the, the cloud service providers right. now, right? right? Audit never went away. All the auditors have sort of disappeared from view and gone into um, internal roles in payments companies. Uh, all of this continues to happen where the specialists are taking their deep, deep knowledge and bringing it inside companies that specialize in that domain. 
Right. And I think that the domain expertise value that you get from whatever it is, whether it's running a database company or whether it's running a, a, a payment company, the, the number of people that um, you would need to hire to have the level of specialization, um, you know, for what you're paying for, you know, two cents per transaction or whatever, $50 a month for some service, um, you couldn't even begin. The total cost of ownership no. on those things are it's it's not even a conversation you would you you would want to have um right. but i also built a payment processing system and i did have to pass pci which we did Ooh. pass um but it was uh <laughs> it was um it it took let's put it this way it was for a customer and we lost money on that customer because we had to go through pci compliance but um but it was good uh it was a good experience to have and it's a good experience to have because now i know i never want to do it again yeah yeah Back to my earlier point on ops and serverless. Right, exactly. Well, the more I mean, you, and these things are hard, right? right. Sorry not to interrupt, right. but these, no, no, these are all really hard problems that people with graduate degrees and postgraduate research who have, you know, they're 30 years old when they start working on the problem are solving. There, there's a supply question there as well, right? It, there's just not enough people. And so you and I can like, well, I'm, I'm not going to project this onto you. I can stumble through an implementation and like check off the requirements, just like I worked in an optical microscopy lab in college and I could create computer programs that modeled those concepts. But I was not a, an optical microscopist. Right. I was not a PhD level, you know, generating understandings of these things. And, and all of these, they're, they're just so hard. Why would you do that when customer problems are equally hard and this set is solved? Right. This set of problems right. over here is solved and you can't differentiate yourself by solving it better. And you're not yeah. likely to solve it better either. But even if you did, it wouldn't matter. Right. These set of problems are completely unsolved. Why not just assemble the pieces from best in class so that you can attack those problems yourself? Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes a ton of sense. So, um, so speaking about expertise, um, let's talk about um, what you might have to pay, say, a uh, a database administrator if you were to, um, uh, you know, if you were to hire a database administrator to maintain all the databases for you and keep all that uptime, and and maybe you have to hire six database administrators Ooh. in order for them Ooh. to. Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking multi-region and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe you have to hire 100, depending on how, you know, what it is. I mean, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But so if I can buy a service like Fauna, so, you know, tell me a little bit more about, um, you know, just, just how that works. Right. Well, I mean, six database engineers in the U.S., you're over a million dollars a year easily, right. right? I don't know what the exact number is, but when you consider benefits and total costs and all of that, it's a million dollars a year for six database engineers. Um, and then there's some very difficult problems in especially distributed databases and database scaling that right. Fauna solves. A number of other products or services solve some of them. Uh, I, I'm biased, of course, but I happen to think Fauna solves all of them mm -hmm. in a way that no other product <laughs> does. Um, but, but you're looking, you know, you mentioned distributed transactions and, um, Fauna is built atop the Calvin paper, which came out of Yale. It's a very brief but dense academic research paper. It's a yeah. PhD research paper. Um, and it talks about a model for distributed transactions in databases. It's a, it's a layer, a serialization layer that sits atop your, your database. So let's say you wanted to replicate something like Fauna. So not only do you need to get six database engineers who understand the underlying database, but you need to find engineers that understand this paper, understand the limitations of the theory in the paper and how to overcome them in operations, in reality, what happens when you actually start running regions around the world, replicating uh, transactions between those regions. Um, quite frankly, there's a level of sophistication there that most of the set of people who satisfy that criteria already work at Fauna. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's not much of a supply there. Now, now there are other database competitors that solve this problem in different ways. And most of the specialists already work at those companies as well. Right. So it's I'm not saying that they aren't equally competent uh, database engineers. I'm just saying there's not a lot of them. Right. And so if your thing is to sell books at a certain scale like Amazon, then it, it makes sense to have them because you are a right. database creator as well. But if your thing is to sell books at some level below that, uh, why would you compete for that talent rather than just consuming it? Right. 
Yeah, and I would say unless you um, <clears throat> unless you're a horse with a horn on your head, it's probably not worth um, you know ma- <laughs> maintaining your own uh, databases and things like that. But so let, let's talk a little bit more though about about that. Um, uh, I guess just this idea of uh, maybe a shortage of people. Like if you're you're right. There's a limited number of resources, right? And I, I'm sure there's brilliant database engineers all around the world, and they have, um, you know, they have the experience where, right, they could they could come in and they could probably really help you um, maintain your database. And even if you could afford six of them, and you you wanted to do that, um, I, I think the problem is is you know it's got to be the the interestingness of the problem. I don't think interestingness is a word either. But um, but it, like if I'm a database engineer. Wouldn't I want to be working on something like Fauna that could help millions and millions of people as opposed to helping some trucking company uh, maintain their internal database or something like that? Yeah, and and I would hope so. And I hope it's okay that I mentioned we're hiring. So come to Fauna.com and uh, and look at our roles, database engineers. You just um, read that Calvin paper first. But, go but ahead. read the Calvin paper first. It's only I think it's only like 12 pages. And even just the first page is enough. Uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about that at any length because I find it fascinating and it's public. Um, it is an interesting problem. And the, you know, it's the the reification or the implementation of theory. It's bringing that theory to the real world. And okay, the theory, first off, the theory is brilliant. This is not to take away from it, but the theory is conceived inside someone's mind. They do some tests, they prove it. And there's a world of difference between that point, which is foundational and deploying it to production where people are trusting their workloads on it around the world. And you're actually replicating across multiple cloud providers and you're actually replicating across multiple regions and you're actually delivering on the promise of the paper. Um, what's, you know, what's described in the paper is not what we run at Fauna right. other than as a, a kernel, as a nugget, right? As the the starting point or the first principle. And, and that I think is, wildly interesting for that class of talent like you talked about the the really world-class engineers who want to do something that can't be done anywhere else um i i think one thing that fauna did smartly early was be a remote first company Mm -hmm. which means that they can take advantage of those world-class engineers and their thirst for innovation regardless of wherever fauna finds them um, and, and so that's a big deal, right? Would you rather work on a world-class or a global problem, or would you rather work on a local problem? Now, look, we need people working on local problems too. It's not right. to disparage that. But if this is your wheelhouse, if innovation is the thing that you want to do, if you want to be doing things with databases that nobody else is doing, this is where you want to be. And so I think there's, there's uh, you know, a, a strong argument there for coming to work at a place like Fauna. Yeah, and I want to make sure I apologize to any database engineer working at a trucking company because I'm sure <laughs> there are actually probably really interesting problems with logistics and things like that that uh, that they are solving. So uh, maybe not the best example. Maybe I don't know. So I can't think of another example. I don't want to offend well, anybody who's 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 chosen um, a, a more local problem because you're right. I mean, there are local problems that need to be solved, but I do think that there are people. I mean, even someone like me, um, like I want to work on a bigger problem. I, you know what I mean? Like it's I owned a web development company for. 12 years, uh, and I was solving other people's problems by building them a website or whatever. And it just got to be to a point where I'm like, I- I'm not making enough of an impact here. You're not solving a big enough problem. Um, you want to work on something more interesting. Yeah. Well, humans crave challenge, right? A challenge is a, a necessary precondition for growth. And at least most of us, we want to grow. We want to be better at whatever it is we're doing or just however we think of ourselves next year than we are today. And you can't do that with challenge. If you build other people's websites for 12 years, eventually you get to a point where maybe you're too good at it. Mm. Maybe, you know, that's that's great from a business perspective, but it's not so great from a personal fulfillment perspective. Right. If it's, oh, look, another brochure website. Okay, here you go. Oh, you need a contact form. And it, again, it's not to disparage this. It's the fact that if you do anything for 12 years, um, sometimes mastery is stasis. Right. And I have not always of contact forms of building. Form, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. You know what you should do is just put all of those directly into fauna and don't uh, worry right. about it. Easy um, enough. Easy enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's not necessarily stasis, but I think, um, you know, I think about craftsmen in, in like 
people who actually make things with their hands, physical right. builders. And I think right. a lot of that, like if you're making furniture, you're a cabinet maker. I think a lot of that is every time it's just a little bit wrong, right? Not not wrong, but just a little bit off from your optimum, no matter how long you do it. And so everything is a chance to evolve. And that's there with software to a certain extent, but the problem's never changing. Right. So yeah, I, I can see both sides of it, but for me, I, you know, you can see it when I was on serverless four years ago. And now that I'm on a serverless database now, I like to be out at the edge, right? pushing that edge out for everyone who's coming behind. And, um, and it can be, uh, it can be challenging yeah. because well, sometimes, sometimes there's just no way forward. And sometimes everybody's not ready to come with you in a lot right. of ways. Um, you know, being early is the same as being wrong. Right. Well, not an original been, statement, but I know when I've, I've been early on many things, uh, as well, where like, you know, five years after we tried to do something like then all of a sudden it was like, you know, this magical thing where everybody's doing it. But, um, you mentioned the edge, uh, that would be, you know, something uh, you said on the edge. Not, I know you mean it <laughs> this way, but, um, the edge in terms of, uh, the actual edge, um, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be an interesting data problem to solve. Oh, this is a fascinating data problem. Um, uh, especially for us at Fauna. Uh, yeah, compute and Andy Jassy, when he was at AWS, talked about how compute was bifurcating, right? It's either moving all the way out to the edge or it's moving all the way into the cloud. And, um, and that's, that's true, but I think at Fauna, we take that a step further, right? Everything, the edge part is true. And a lot of the work that we've done recently, announcements with Cloudflare workers, uh, we're, you know, we're ready for that. We believe in it and we like pushing that out as close to the user as possible. Uh, one thing that we do uniquely is we have this concept of user-defined functions. And anybody who's written T-SQL back in the day, wrote stored procedures is gonna be familiar with this, but it's you bring that business logic and that code to your data, not near your data, to your data. Right. So you bring the compute, not just to the cloud where it still needs to pass through top of rack and all of this, you bring it literally onto the same instance as your data where these functions execute against them there. So you get, not just a database, but you get a compute layer in there. And this helps for things like filtering, for things like um, the equivalent of joins, uh, stuff that just, if you've got to load gigabytes of data, move it somewhere, compute against it, reduce right. it to something, and then store that back, the speed of light still matters. Even mm -hmm. if it's the speed of light across a couple switches, it still matters. And so there's some really interesting things that you can begin to do as you pull more and more of that logic into your data layer and you also protect that logic from other components of your application. So I like that because things like GraphQL that endpoints already speak and already understand, just yeah. send it over. And again, they don't care about the architectural, quite frankly, genius. I can yeah. say that because I didn't create it. <laughs> the genius behind all of this stuff. They just care that, look, I send this request over and I get it back. And entire, like, workflows and complex processes and everything are executing behind the scenes just so that the endpoints can send and retrieve what they need more yeah. effectively and, and more quickly. Um, the edge is fascinating. The thing I regret the most about the edge is I have no hardware skills, right? So I can't make fun things to do fun things in my house. I have to buy them, right. um, but you can't know everything. Yeah. Well, no, I think I, I think you make a, a a good point though about the, the bringing the compute to the data side, and other people have said this. I know Ben Kehoe has been um, has been sort of talking about this for a while too, where um, like it just makes sense, like just mm -hmm. you know run your run the compute where the data is, um, mm -hmm. and then send that data somewhere else, right? Because there's there's more things that can be done with data after that initial bit of compute, but certainly um, sort of like you said, filtering it down or getting just like you know getting the bits that are relevant and moving a small amount of data as opposed to a large amount of data, um, I think is uh, is hugely important. Now, the other thing I just I want to mention before before I let you go, or I want to talk about quickly, um, is you know this idea of uh, going back to the API economy aspect of things um, and buying versus building. Um, if you think about what you've had to do at Fauna, and I know you're you're relatively recent there, but you know what they've done and, and the work that had to go in in order to build this distributed system. I mean, I think about most systems now, and I think like anything I'm going to build now, I got to think about 
scale, right? Like I don't necessarily mm -hmm. have to build it to scale right away, especially if I'm doing a, you know, an MVP or something like that. Um, but if I was going to build a service that did something, I need to think about multi-region and I need to think about failover and I need to think about, you know, potentially, you know, providing it at the edge and all these other things. So sort of, you know, you come down to this thing and I, I would just use the database example, but even if you were say using like, MySQL or Postgres or something like that. That's going to scale. That's going to scale pretty well to get to a certain point. And mm. then you're going to have to start sharding, right? When data mm -hmm. gets hard, it's time to shard, right? Like you just have to start <laughs> sharding everything. And, and essentially yeah. what you end up doing is rebuilding DynamoDB or trying to rebuild a fauna or something like that. Um, so uh, just thinking about that in anything you're building, um, you know, I, I, maybe you have some advice for developers who, you know, we, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but like I just go back to this idea of like, if you think about how complex some of these SaaS companies and these services that are being built are right now, why would you ever want to take that complexity on yourself? <laughs> Pride? Hubris? Um, I, I mean, the, the correct answer is you wouldn't. You shouldn't. Um, this, people do. Yeah, they do. Uh, I would beg and plead with them, like, look, we, we did take a lot of that on. Fauna scales. You don't need to plan for sharding. You don't need to plan for global replication. All of these things are happening. And I, I raise that as an example of understanding the customer's problem. The customer didn't want to think about, okay, past a thousand TPS, I need to create a new read replica. Past a right. million TPS, I need to have another region with active, active. The, the customer wanted to store some data right. and get that data knowing that they had the asset guarantees around it, right? And, and that's, that's what the customer has. So get that good understanding of what your customer really wants. And if if you can buy that, then you don't have a product yet. This is this is even out of software development and into uh, product ideation at startups, mm -hmm. right? If you can go, your customer's problem isn't they can't send text messages programmatically. They can do that through Twilio. They can do that through Amazon. They can do that through a number of different services, right? Your customer's problem is, is something else. So really get a good understanding of it. And... This is, this is where knowing a little, like Joe Emerson loves to rage against senior developers for knowing like <laughs> not quite enough. Um, this is where knowing like, oh yeah, Postgres, you can just shard it. Just the worst word yeah. in computer science, right? right? You can just shard it. Uh, okay, now we're back to those database engineers that you talked about and your customer doesn't want a sharded database. Your customer wants to store and retrieve data. Right. So anytime that you can really focus in, and I guess I really got this one, this customer obsession beaten into me from my time at AWS, really focus in on what the customer is asking you to do or what the customer needs, even if they don't know how to express it and build for that. Right, right. Like the uh, the, the saying, I forgot who says it, somebody from Harvard Business Review, but um, your customers don't want a quarter inch drill they want a quarter inch hole <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, right and then that's and that's basically true like i mean the, the complexity that goes behind the scenes um are something that i think a, a vast majority of customers don't necessarily want um yeah. and, and you're right if you focus on that product ideation thing i think that's a that's a big piece of it yeah. um all right well anyway so i i have one more question for you just uh it, please um we've been uh talking for a while here hopefully we haven't been boring people to death um <laughs> with our uh with our talk about apis and stuff like that but um I would like to get a little bit academic here and and go into that Calvin paper just a tiny bit because yeah. um, I think most people probably will not want to read it, um, <laughs> not because they don't want to, but because people are busy, right? And so if they're listening yeah. to the podcast, um, just give us a quick summary of this because I think this is actually really fascinating and has benefits beyond just, I, I think, solving data problems. Yeah. So, so what I would say first, I actually have this paper on my desk at all times. I would say... <laughs> Read section one. It's one page front and back. So if you're interested in it, you don't have to read the whole paper. Read that. Um, and then the listeners of this podcast will probably understand when I say this. Previously for distributed databases and distributed transactions, you had what was called a two-phase commit. The first was you go out to all of your replicas and you say, hey, I need a lock. And when everybody comes back and acknowledges and says, okay, you have the lock, then you do your transaction and then you replicate it and then you say, hey, everybody, I'm done, release the lock. And so it's a, a two-phase commit. And if something went wrong, you rolled it all the way back and you said, hey, everybody, forget it. Um, Calvin is event sourcing for databases. And so if I could distill the entire 
the entire paper down into one concept, that's it, right? Instead of saying, hey, everybody, give me a lock, I'm going to do something, you say, hey, everybody, here's what we're going to do. And it's a deterministic application of the transaction so that you can you you both create the lock and execute the transaction at the same time. So rather than having this outbound round trip and then doing the thing in an outbound round trip, you have the outbound round trip and you're done. And they all apply it independently. And then it gets into how you structure the guarantees around that, which again is very similar to event sourcing in that you use snapshotting or checkpointing. So, hey, at this point, we all agree. So we can forget all of our old transactions and we roll forward from here. And if somebody leaves the cluster, they come back in at that checkpoint, they reapply all of the events that occurred prior to that. Those events are transactions. They get up to working speed and then off they go. Um, The paper, I think, uses Paxos. Uh, That's an implementation detail. Mm -hmm. But the the really interesting thing about it is you're you're not having that double round trip. And Again, like I, I love the idea of event sourcing. I think Amazon EventBridge is the best service that they've released in the yeah. past couple of years. Totally. And if you understand all of that and are already building serverless applications that way, well, that's what we're doing. Um, just event sourcing <laughs> for for a database. That's it. Easy. That's it. Simple. It's... All right. right. All the words you never want to hear. Simple, easy, just. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. But but we do the hard work so you don't have to. You don't care about all of that. You want to write your data somewhere and you want to retrieve your data from an API and that's what Fauna gives you. Which I think is uh, I think is the the main point here. So um, awesome. All right. Well, Rob, listen, this was great, and I'm 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 super happy that I finally got you on the show. Uh, yeah. Congratulations for the new role at Fauna and um, and Thank you. Uh, on what everything is what's happening over there because it is pretty exciting i love uh i love companies that are innovate innovating right it's not just another hosted another hosted database you're actually building something here that is innovative which is uh is pretty amazing so if uh if people want to find out more about you follow you on twitter or uh, find out more about fauna how do they do that Right. Uh, Twitter, RTS underscore Rob. The, probably the easiest way, go to my website, robsutter.com, and you'll link to me from there. From there, of course, you'll get to fauna.com um, and all of our resources there. Uh, always open to answer questions on Twitter. Um, and yeah, oh, rob at fauna.com. If you're, if you're old school like me and you prefer the email, there you go. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, I will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Rob. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Rob Sutter for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 99. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.